politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at Blaze Media on Friday. Thank God, end of week, September 18th. Happy birthday, United States Air Force. Today is the anniversary of their creation, which was obviously a lot later than the Army and the Navy. We need our own Air Force to carpet bomb the forces of tyranny. The forces of tyranny on the streets, the forces of tyranny intellectually in the media and government promoting false panic, false fear, fallacious data to lock down our lives, to infringe upon every one of our liberties, and to try to create an aura of a new normal. Today we got good news, really good news. From yesterday's somber show, and certainly it was somber, but I think much needed reflection on how much we've deviated from the Constitution. Yesterday was Constitution Day. But we have a victory in Tennessee. And today we're going to have a special guest on to do a deep dive into Tennessee, Nashville in particular, and why what went on there with the fudging of data, obfuscation of flow of real information about COVID, which led to wrong metrics and benchmarks fueling this lockdown and restriction on businesses, why that could be repeated elsewhere, because the lies that took place there about the benchmarks and the data, it's happening everywhere, red and blue alike. We're seeing red Governors and county executives and mayors doing the same thing that the Democrats are doing. So this could be repeated. We need our own Air Force. And that Air Force consists of citizens that are willing to bind together to form groups on an activism level, at an information level, because this is very much an information warfare, more than almost anything else. It truly is. So we're going to get to our guest from Tennessee in a couple of minutes, the main course today. But I just want to give you a little bit of an appetizer. We haven't spoken about immigration in quite some time. The border, criminal aliens. And that doesn't mean that those problems have stopped. It doesn't mean that we never go a day without illegal aliens raping minors, killing people, drunk driving incidents. That has not stopped. I mean, I guess the drunk driving maybe did a little bit during the original lockdown, (laughs) but um, I just haven't focused on it because we've been so busy and just philosophically, our house is burning so much that there's nothing to protect from invaders. In other words, if we don't have liberty, if we don't have a country worth fighting for, if we have the domestic tyranny from Antifa and BLM, then you know, there's there's no country to save from illegal aliens. It almost doesn't matter anymore. So that's why I haven't focused on it. But I do have a column out today just going through a few of the many, many heinous crimes that are committed by illegal aliens recently. And I, I, I could have went on forever. I just picked about four or five different cases. And again, I want to note that The reason why this is able to persist is because we don't enforce our laws. Because illegal doesn't mean illegal. Because we actually criminalize in many areas the enforcement of the law. Anyone who tries to enforce it, they're able to get jobs. They're able to steal identity. Even though government has the full tools at a federal level to clamp down on it. Which would basically choke off their ability to live here. And then that ties back into the border. It ties back into the border because you might not have heard about it in the news, but we have a pretty big flow at the border. So we had the 2019-2020 crisis, or I'm sorry, 2018-2019 crisis, unprecedented, people just coming over to surrender and we brought them right in through the front door. That was the invasion through lawfare. After 18 months of us yelling, finally the administration took our advice and choked off the lawfare, and the family units stopped coming. 
Then we had the virus, the pandemic, which scared the globe. So naturally, people stopped moving around. And earlier this year, you know, March, April, illegal immigration really slowed to a trickle. But then it started going up again. Every month, going up again. And as we noted, a lot of them were actually bringing in the virus. The severe cases that Mexico happened to have, more than a lot of other places, which are very much uh, evident if you look at the COVID data from Arizona and uh, Texas in the late spring and early summer. But it keeps going up and up and up. And now we're at the point where in August, now we're already halfway through September, more than halfway through September, but August data came out maybe about a week ago by CBP. It shows that they have apprehended 50,000 illegal aliens in the month of August. That's already back up to significant numbers. Because annualized, that, that's a flow of 600,000. That's already at the lower end of the crisis levels we had. It's the highest level we had since September of last year, when we were finally were starting to get control of this because of the policies that were put in place over the preceding few months. But then, I looked into the numbers. We had 42,000 single adults. So this is being driven primarily by single adults. Again, because we choked off the open door. So now we're back to the old paradigm of them trying to sneak in, which is mainly going to be single adults, usually males. And I look back in the data, it's hard to pull this sub-data point But based on my estimates, this is likely the highest level of illegal immigration from single adults in at least 10 years since 2010. In a decade. That's a big deal. Again, this is happening with Trump as president. And the point I'm trying to make is that clearly they feel that that if they get into the country, it is unlikely they will be detected And removed. And they will be able to accomplish whatever they want. If it's getting a job, it's getting a job. If it's um, joining MS-13, it's it's that. If it's drug trafficking, they will be able to do that. And my point is, if we had real interior enforcement and just simply cut off the magnets and enforced identity theft, they wouldn't come. Frankly, you wouldn't need a border wall or, or much border infrastructure. So that's, that's the problem that we're seeing here. So every one of these cases you see, and I have some heinous cases of child sex offenses, they're allowed to remain here because we don't take simple measures that will make this all preventable. So I just wanted you guys to be aware of that. I'm aware of this. I'm hearing things from my border agent friends. We'll probably talk about it in the coming days. I haven't forgotten about that issue, and we will certainly go into it. But I do want to get back to the domestic problems, the tyranny. You think about how we we did this all for nothing. Sometimes people say something we already know, but it's so eloquent because it's so simple. I want you guys to listen to this short clip from Sinatra Gupta. She's a professor of epidemiology at Oxford. Now, you would think like epidemiology, Oxford. Okay, that's the biggest profession now at the top-rated university in the world. So you would think we would kind of listen. You know, they're making it seem like it's just a bunch of ruffians, a bunch of, uh, you know, rubes that that don't believe in this settled science of lockdown and mitigation and mask wearing, when really numerous Oxford professors of epidemiology and, and similar fields oppose this from day one. And she had an amazingly eloquent statement of what we could have been doing. Take a listen here. It's not deadly in a very large sector of the population. So that presents us with this workable solution whereby we can stop testing them, let them get on with their lives, let them go to school and receive something that is incredibly valuable to them, which is education and training, let people keep jobs, let them feed their children. Let's preserve all of these things. Let the arts continue or 
resume and continue to flourish. We can do all this and by aggressively protecting, I think maybe shielding is not the right word, aggressively protecting those who are indeed vulnerable to this infection, which of course, I apologise, of course it can be very deadly in a certain sector of the population. The good news is we know now who is vulnerable to a very large degree. We know that. And we also know, what are the things we really know in this? We know who's vulnerable and we know about the enormous costs of some of these measures. What, how can we balance these? We can balance these by using our tests to find creative solutions to protect the vulnerable, not just shield them and shut them up and box them away, but ways of protect them, protecting them by testing people who they'll be in contact with and making sure that they won't pass the virus on to them by creating the conditions whereby they are at a low risk of contracting this virus, which has not diminished in its potency, but is now currently now held at low risk. But we cannot hold it at low risk forever without paying these extreme costs. Folks, listen to that. Just a simple notion. I said this in March already. Shield and stratify. Or stratify and shield. Even in the worst areas of Lombardy and New York City, which never really replicated itself elsewhere. Elsewhere really wasn't much of an epidemic ever. Some places it never reached that level. But even there, you know, you look at the data, it was overwhelmingly 98% or so people with severe underlying conditions, serious underlying conditions. And we knew who they were. We knew it from day one. We didn't have to shield other people from what was essentially ranged from nothing to a cold to, in worst case scenario, a flu. Okay? We we didn't need to do that. If we're locking people down, you may as well lock them down. And as she noted, she didn't want to use the word lockdown. It's that you protect them. Notice what she said. Imagine if our government would have spent all the effort it spent into trying to put a blanket up in front of a virus. It's like trying to block a hurricane. If they would have put that into fortifying and educating people on fortifying their immune systems. The studies that have come out on vitamin D, which we knew from day one, how effective it is. These these SOBs convince people to lock themselves down in their homes. And deplete their vitamin D levels because they didn't get exposure to the sun for weeks on end. A lot of them still haven't. In the nursing homes, are they taking them outdoors? I don't know. Imagine for all the money we spent handing out free stuff, free meals, trillions of dollars. We would have given people the best vitamin D regimen, had the best doctors from government agencies, rather than fear-mongering and pushing flat-earth things that we can't affect anyway. To empower people on just, when was the last time you heard, hey, here's the best way to fortify your immune system? Good advice. Because they don't want empowerment. Because then when you're empowered, you have less to fear. It's truly disgusting how it wasn't until last week that Fauci was like, yeah, I guess vitamin D kind of helps. I I take supplements as well. Truly unbelievable. But I want to get back to our guest and back to Tennessee. So the next guest we have on really merges together several themes that I've been talking about for months already. Number one, that this is more of a data analysis issue than it is a medical issue. This is a public policy issue. And this is why I've noted, I I see this in my own community and all over, these specialists, they could be endocrinologists or radiologists or whatever, and they literally know nothing about what's going on. They don't know anything about all the trends we've talked about and written about and, you know, the people that you guys follow on Twitter, um, the smart group of guys that we put together. It's lost on them. They they know nothing. Wear a mask, stay six feet apart. Like, you know what I mean? It's the straight up 
tropes that they're just drinking out of that trough and there's no original thought. This is really about data analysis and people with very different skill sets and also just simply paying attention. Number two, as we've noted, and we've noted noted this over and over and over again, this is a fight at the local level. Okay? At a local level is where we're going to make our impact. We can't impact a large behemoth. Really, a lot of it's not even promulgated at a federal level, although some of the federal officials are pouring fuel on the fire. But this is being done at a local level. And we've noted that you have red state after red state after red state that is almost as tyrannical as the blue states. And it's like, where's, where's our crowd? Where are the troops? We need an intellectual movement to fight back against it, to inform people, but also to get active. And you get in their face, you're going to see change. But if you don't, well, there's only one team on the field. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. The elected officials hear from the Karens. They don't hear from another side. That's where they're going to go. And that's a lesson we need to take and internalize at, at a school board level, at a county council level. So we have that. Matt Malkus with us today really embodies this because he was part of that group that helped expose the obfuscated data in Nashville where the mayor's office was continuing these impossible benchmarks um, in order to uh, continue a shutdown on businesses and say, hey, this amount of people need to be in the hospital, hospital beds need to be this low, which was impossibly low. Um, We have so many cases among bars and restaurants, and it turned out there weren't, and they covered up that information. Well, I'm sure you guys have seen this is blowing up. The mayor relented or appears to be relenting, and appears to be moving forward. He's getting a lot of pressure. Where did that come from? How do we replicate that success? So Matt Malkus started this group called National for Rational COVID Policy, and I I want you guys to go to asmartnashville.org, and you can see they have a lot of great information, kind of like Rational Ground... um, Dot com. This is for a local level, and I think we need to start more of these chapters. You could follow him at Malkus M on Twitter. So that's M-A-L-K-U-S-M. What is special about Matt's skill set? Is he a doctor? Is he a scientist? No. He's a life insurance actuary, financial professional. And he obviously lives in the Nashville area. And what he has been doing is using his skills to leverage analytical and operational background to examine various aspects of this pandemic, including retrospective modeling reviews, which he's done on his Twitter, on this website, the epidemic curve comparisons. These are things that people that you see in your neighborhood, in your county, uh, doctors signing on to these letters, you can't do this. They're not doing this. Frankly, people like Robert Redfield doesn't really appear to be informed on this. Matt and some of his colleagues are. He is part of this group, this Rational Ground group that I've been honored to be a part of and really, really terrific background there. I was excited to have him on for a long time. Really glad that we could make this work today. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time, and uh, it's an interesting time to be in Nashville, an interesting time to to talk about what's going on here, I think. So so I'll tell you what's interesting. Typically, we've seen this as a one-sided fight. Everywhere, it's more and more restrictions. We're moving to ratchet it up. Again, even in the red states, you we're finding the governors of Mississippi, Indiana, we're going to continue the mask mandate. We're going to extend it. But yet in Nashville, we got the breaking news yesterday that the mayor, Cooper, um, said he would relent on the restrictions on bars and restaurants. It looks like he's going to open up some sports. Could you just give us a brief overview of what you guys and other people successfully spearheaded that led to this uh, pullback on the part of the mayor? Sure. Well, I think I think context uh, is is important uh, in in terms of the uh, you know what's going on here locally uh, from the beginning of the pandemic. And so I'll I'll start there. I'll, I'll keep it brief. But 
you know, the, the mayor uh, and the health department here in Nashville back in April announced uh, what they called the roadmap for reopening. And, you know, they pledged that it was going to be data driven. Uh, they laid out these metrics and said, you know, once we meet these metrics, we're going to move from phase one to phase two and so forth. And that happened. I mean, they, they true to their word uh, up until uh, you know, early July when, uh, you know, we saw a spike in cases and rolled back from phase three to phase two. Uh, but we did more than that at that time. So we didn't just go back a phase based on the plan. Uh, you know, we went into what the mayor called modified phase two. Uh, and the reasoning behind doing that was because there were record numbers of clusters at bars and restaurants and we needed to be more strict on bars and restaurants for that reason. Uh, and so, you know, we, we rolled those uh, restrictions back actually to, to phase one. Um, now, you know, in light of what's come out, that's problematic because we know that that data was, uh, you know, not, not justifying uh, those restrictions. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, we didn't have too much of an issue even then. Um, what, what happened was we went into modified phase two and stayed there and went into this sort of, uh, data purgatory where, you know, there wasn't really no plan, uh, from August on the numbers started to go down. Metrics were improving. We realized, you know, okay, some of these metrics are, you know, not, uh, you know, not reachable. They're, they're, they're calculated poorly, you know, we couldn't recreate their calculations. And so, you know, that was the, around the time that we started this group. Um, and we really started from a transparency angle, like, you know, just open up, you know, how you're calculating these metrics so that we can see, you know, so that we can recreate the numbers. And then we can have a discussion on level terms. The public can say, you know, th these numbers are, you know, not reachable or we need to modify them. Um, and, you know, this all kind of snowballed from there where, you know, we had several requests that go beyond the, the contact tracing, uh, that, you know, we just couldn't get answers from the mayor's office. So, um, you know, that was kind of where we started. So that's where you started. Obviously we had the Fox 17 article that came out. Um, and we, we talked about it here yesterday. I published an article at the blaze. A lot of people really focused on that yesterday, where it appeared from emails that they were covering up the fact that they knew that there were a few cases among bars and restaurants. Frankly, I mean, Tennessee really never got a bad statewide. Um, and I want to talk about that later. And it was very clear that this wasn't some sort of a disagreement over thresholds or strategy. They clearly enjoy the power. They clearly enjoy the restrictions as an end to itself because when the justification wanes, rather than saying, wow, thank God, this is great. I think we should all be happy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very extreme form of chemotherapy, uh, you know, at least proverbially speaking, to go and shut down an economy, shut down people's lives, uh, the legal aspects of that, the liberty, the economic impact, the mental health impact. Uh, drugs is a huge problem. The drug overdose problem in Nashville and Tennessee so, look, let's not do this for any longer than we need to. But instead, they're like, no, we got a problem here. And then we can't continue the restrictions, meaning that's become the main course, the end game, the purpose. So they, they, they tried to obfuscate it. Now, we've seen many bad actors throughout the country, I mean, all over the place, throughout this epidemic. And we expose what we feel to be bombshells, and it doesn't go anywhere. It just doesn't land. This thing seemed to land... And it worked, unless he's playing a rope-a-dope, uh, Mayor Cooper. Could you explain to us some of the building blocks there, how you guys seem to achieve transparency and then even a policy victory, and maybe how some other people could replicate that elsewhere? Yeah, so so there were there were several aspects. I mean, first of all, we've got a great team here. Um, so we've got got myself, who's a, an actuary and, and has some operational experience, kind of managing a team of people. Uh, we've got uh, other data analysts. We've got people who are savvy with media, and then we have people that are, you know, fortunately, and I think this is a, a key component, 
you know, connected with local politicians, connected with local media sources. And, you know, even when we started, you know, having those connections didn't really get us anywhere because people weren't asking questions. They weren't asking the right questions. Um, And so, you know, for us, the the, the building blocks were to, uh, you know, focus on transparency, keep things simple, you know, when we couldn't, when we couldn't, uh, you know, get a number, get a, get a, a data point, you know, just asking the question, you know, in a, at a very basic level, Hey, we can't get an answer from the city on how many hospital beds there are. Can you help us out with that? Um, you know, stuff that should be in any, you know, representative government, uh, pretty innocuous, pretty non-controversial, uh, that question, by the way, we still haven't gotten an answer to. And, and I published an article on the website nearly a month ago at this point. Uh, so, you know, hopefully now the, the city will be more forthcoming with that sort of information. Um, but, you know, there was a pattern here. It was a, it was a pattern of, uh, you know, not disclosing that information and, and kind of giving reporters the runaround. And, and, you know, I think that's when reporters started to be, you know, a little bit more willing to, to you know, bring hard-hitting hitting questions forward. Um, you know, from there, um, you know, building into the political aspect of things, you know, there, there are, you know, this is unfortunately a, a political fight. I don't think that it should be. Um, but, you know, to the extent that these decisions are, you know, impacting lots of people, uh, you know, there, there are, you know, uh, political ramifications to what our leaders are doing. Uh, and, you know, we at least want to know, okay, are these science and data driven or are they, you know, more or less arbitrary? Uh, and so pushing on that, you know, telling, you know, politicians that are, that are already, you know, kind of of that mindset that, you know, hey, we've gone too far here. These restrictions, you know, have been in place too long or, you know, that, that you know, hey, maybe this isn't science and, and data driven. Maybe we can push that angle. Maybe we can, you know, give it teeth that, you know, resonates across the political spectrum. Um, you know, and I think that's, you know, been a big push here as well. So one of the things I liked what you guys really did is you targeted the data and pegged it to the original mission. And I think that's what a lot of us have forgotten because we've gotten so sucked into this. We're, we're so into bean counting, random, notional, often notional or false even cases. But this was all about having hospitals that aren't overrun in an unprecedented manner, more than we typically see in a flu season. Yet you look at a state like Tennessee, and most of the time it didn't even reach flu season levels. So you have this great graphic, and we used it at the Blaze, um, where you show pretty much, you know, the the percentage of beds taken up by COVID patients is something like, you know, two and a half, two to two and a half percent. It it was a little bit more at its peak, but not much more. And that their benchmark for for reopening was that they had to have 20% of beds open. And what I, what my fear is is that the average person thinks okay, well that's reasonable. I mean, you know, you don't want 80 more than 80% of your beds uh full because that kind of sounds like a lot. But typically hospitals don't run open buildings with no one in it because it's not cost effective. They have a a surge capacity, but generally they try to fill it up. And what you guys showed is that basically most of the year, even not during flu season, but certainly during flu season, it's nearly impossible to get it below that 80% benchmark of available beds in Nashville um, hospitals is this something that other people could do in their localities? Do, is this unique to Nashville that it's a bogus benchmark that's impossible to meet? Or do you sense this is happening elsewhere? No, I think it's definitely happening elsewhere. And I think that this stems from, uh, you know, an inability or a refusal to re- revisit our, our prior assumptions from back in March and April. You know, this, this plan that those hospital metrics were, were set up in April uh, the, when the city was, you know, building, you know, surge capacity in the parking lot of Vanderbilt University and and, you know, uh, Vanderbilt was saying if we lift, you know, lockdown restrictions that we're going to have 50,000 people in the state uh, in, in hospitals at one time, we've, we've never gotten above 1100. Uh, so, you know, the, the 
the assumptions were off by ridiculous orders of magnitude. And, and when you're, when you're looking at things in that framework, yeah, maybe you do want to say, you know, okay, with all of this surge capacity and everything else, we want to keep 20% of beds available because we don't know how quickly this is going to ramp up. We're well beyond that now. I mean, we, we, we haven't had anything like that happen, you know, quite frankly, even in New York city where, you know, there, there was, you know, potentially a, a, a stress on the system for, you know, a period of one to two weeks. I mean, we just, the, 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 the hospital metrics are, are, you know, built in, you know, kind of a different framework of, of, you know, fear that doesn't align with the data. Um, to your point, Vanderbilt uh, typically uh, runs at about 91% of beds taken uh, and they have about 1100 beds. So it's a big hospital. It's a very great hospital. Uh, we have, you know, Nashville's a healthcare center. Uh, you know, the city has has repeatedly said that we have the ability to increase capacity in the event of a surge. Um, you know, we think that hospital capacity is important, uh, but it should completely be reconfigured. Uh, and 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 this is going on to your point. You know, in a lot of places where you know we're just tied and tethered to this old model of you know we're going to overwhelm our hospitals. And what I find so ironic about that is this, in Tennessee, so you never had a problem. I was even shocked when I took a look at the data from the Sunbelt wave, you know, from July. So basically, you guys never had anything during the real lockdown. That was the whole joke, though. All hospitals in the South were empty. Uh, they, they were getting crushed because they had no revenue because on the one hand, uh, their operations were shut down to prepare for COVID. But on the other hand, they didn't even get COVID. So they didn't have much. When they finally wound up getting it, which we weren't expecting, but it, in retrospect, it was the, you know, maybe the Hope Simpson curve. It goes south. Okay, so when in the summer, it was nothing like what New York and New Jersey had in, in those southern states. Um, it was It was so little. And you look now, you look relative to that time. And... You might say, well, it would have had we not been doing this stuff, we would have been overrun. But here's the problem with that. At the same they have it both ways. At the same time, they're they're going nuts about bean counting cases. So that actually works to our point. See, if you didn't have any cases, I could say, well, look, you know, the lockdown's working or natural factors are holding it at bay. But let me tell you, the big bad wolf could always come and beat you up and, and you're gonna be out in the streets and, and have uh dead bodies piling up. But now that you have ubiquitous rampant cases, so to speak, the case demic. So in, in many ways, it's better than not having it because now you've looked that big bad wolf in the eye and it's like, oh, so we have it and the hospitals are kind of empty. I mean, very few cases. And isn't it true, by the way, Matt, that even those cases, a lot of them could be subclinical. So it's not like, oh, you know, 2.3% of hospital beds in Nashville are filled with COVID patients who... um came in with acute respiratory distress syndrome, that they have a severe pneumonia and can't breathe, like, you know, some of the worst cases in, in New York, isn't a lot of it really like, hey, a pregnant woman came in to give birth or a, a trauma victim from a car accident and they test them and, oh, whoops, they're positive. Or at, at the minimum, maybe an elderly person has fever, he's scared, typically he wouldn't even come in, but, you know, because of the panic and everything, they come. Are you seeing some of that too? Yeah, so I, you know, I think that there are a lot of questions there. First, you know, with with respect to cases and and you know what should and should be counted as a case. Uh, you know, <laughs> clinically, sorry, I've got a got a, got a barking dog here. You got to put a mask on him. Today and <laughs> so he's he's uh, he'll be okay. I'm going to go here to a quieter space. But but uh, yeah, there there are issues with counting cases. Uh, you know, there's there are still six months on, and and this is you know potentially a, an an issue with uh, you know government being you know either either inept and not you know able to see the problems or uh, you know or or just not willing to address the problems. But yeah, we would like to have specific data on uh, you know who is presenting with COVID-like illness versus you know, who is showing up in the hospital and getting tested and, 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 Hey, we're positive, even though, you know, I'm, I'm having some elective procedure, um, you know, so that's, that's a distinction that, you know, we think should be made now, you know, you want to kind of cut through that by looking at trends and, 
and we did have a, a, a an increase and then a decrease uh, in in July and August uh, in hospitalizations were attributed to COVID, as you did in many of the Sun Belt states. But but here's the problem: there uh, we had you know a maximum of 220. I think I think I, I'm not exactly from the number, but about 220 uh, COVID hospitalizations in Nashville. We, according to the state, have 4,200 beds. So that's about 5% of all of your beds in the county. And we're saying that 20% of beds need to be available. I mean, the, 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 the magnitude of, you know, those things are just not in proportion to one another. You know, we need to reconfigure those metrics so that they accurately reflect, you know, the, the size of the problem and, you know, make make sure that we're not under, overrunning our hospitals, which is the whole point to begin with. I found the Nashville mayor's statement on this to um, WZTV to be emblematic of everything we're dealing with today, and and he let he let it out the, let let the cat out of the bag. The hospital metric is very important because that's really how we started all this. So he concedes that. Then he says, what we know now with our hospital partners is that they can create a lot of capacity if they have time. In the first month or two of the disease, when we were really worried that the Music City Center was going to end up as one great big hospital and capacity questions were all important. So capacity questions were all important. So I expected him to finish that statement and say, and now that we've gone through months and months of seeing that it never materialized, we never even got close, and that's with having all these cases, very few of them wind up being clinical and serious um, and, and certainly not more than a really bad flu season. So therefore, we're going to end this. Instead, he says, no, now I think they, they do recede a little bit, meaning the hospital capacity, and that's why it can be just on one metric. That's why it can't be on just one metric. You've navigated the course of the disease that, let's be more real- realistic, it will be much more like a year will be influenced by it. So he he states a leniency. He's he states a leniency in the virus that that no, this is really, you know, not much of a problem and he says and therefore it needs to go on indefinitely. A year, which means indefinitely. I mean, what the heck? Yeah. It's 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 insane and and you know, the so you know, our, our, one of the things that we're, we're pushing on, you know, is that, you know, again, we're focused on hospital capacity metrics here. You know, those should be reflecting the, the magnitude of the problem and, and you, you should define clearly define the goal. So the goal is we want to make sure we don't overrun our hospitals. OK, great. How do we make sure that we're not doing that? And how do we make sure that we're not doing that specifically because of COVID? So we want to track COVID hospitalizations. You know, ideally, we'd have this distinction of with COVID versus, you know, presenting with COVID-like illness. But, but even, even beyond that, you know, the, the metrics are, are the way that they're constructed are, you know, to re- reflect total patients divided by total beds, regardless of whether they're COVID patients or not. And as we've shown, you know, COVID patients have never been more than 5% of beds. And so, you know, it, maybe, maybe that's the metric. Maybe you say, okay, if we get to 5%, that you know that 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 may be an issue. It, it seems like if you know COVID were were more like ten to fifteen percent of total beds, that that wouldn't be an issue because we didn't see an increase in total patient census during July. And so you know the the, the hospital capacity metrics were consistently at around fifteen percent here in Nashville. Uh, you know of beds available, we never had any sort of capacity issue, and that's that's notwithstanding our ability to. Uh, you know, as the mayor and and the uh, the task force uh, administrator here says, we have the ability to surge. We have the ability to increase capacity. That's not reflected in the capacity metric that we're using. So there are a lot of issues like that. There's another issue uh, uh, with uh, cases per 100,000 residents, which is about at uh, I believe 16 or so right now here in Nashville. Uh, the mayor is, is, you know, stressing we need to get that below 10. We need to get that below 10. First of all, that's an arbitrary, you know, threshold. But putting that aside, uh, you know, in the last two weeks, both weekly press conferences, the, the coronavirus task force leader here has acknowledged that, uh, you know, more than 40 percent of new cases in the last seven days have been from prison systems. Those aren't community spread. So again, define the goal. The goal is to make sure that we're not having 
you know, wide community transmission of the virus, we're using a metric that, you know, they, they acknowledge includes cases that are not part of community spread. So that needs to be changed. We need to have that metric reflect what the stated goal of the metric is to, you know, ensure that we're mitigating the, the, the pandemic responsibly. But, you know, it, when we're inflating the metrics in these ways, you know, we're keeping these restrictions in place for much longer than they actually need to be. And, and, and you know, that part of the, the, uh, the equation, the costs of, of these measures is just never discussed at these programs. Never, never. When you look at Davidson, you look at Davidson County, right? So I, I looked at from March through July 25th, there were 354 drug overdose fatalities and 186 COVID deaths. Um, the, the, the drug fatalities were up 47% um, in Davidson County. So just that one thing alone almost gets to the COVID deaths, which is really my next question about the mission itself. So you're saying how they talk about stopping community spread, but then you know they don't even abide by that metric. But to challenge, who says that's the metric? Meaning we've lived our lives, you know how many times we said there's a bug going around and there was never any notion or desire, ability to stop it. The understanding was what's the it? The it is really bad. There's going to be people... Bodies piling up in hospitals and we can't keep up with it. But once we see for so long that's not the case, then who says the it is the problem? Which leads me to my next um, question. Just I want to I want you to use your life insurance actuary mindset. Looking at you deal with death all the time and calculating death and and putting it into perspective. You look at New York City and yeah. You know, so there clearly was a big epidemic, even if you account for a lot of lockdown type of deaths and panic deaths. But there were a lot, there were COVID deaths there that clearly um, jut out in any baseline trend of, of excess deaths. But you look at a place like Tennessee, and again, where, where you have more drug overdose deaths than you do have COVID deaths, and you look at the life expectancy of the people who die. How would, as a life insurance actuary, how would you categorize what Tennessee has experienced from COVID itself the last number of months? Yeah, so there's a couple of, pro- of approaches there. I mean, you know, I think looking at excess deaths overall is useful. And, and as you said, you, you know, there, there are, uh, it, it is hard to tell just from looking at excess deaths whether those are actually COVID deaths or whether they're caused by our response. You know, as you as you've clearly stated, overdose deaths, you know, increasing this dramatically in the time period that coincides with our mitigation efforts from March on, uh, it, you know, you'd be hard pressed to say that those are COVID deaths. You, you know, those are clearly in response to what we've done. So you have that issue when you look at excess deaths. Even if you put that aside, we haven't really had excess deaths in Tennessee, according to the CDC. So that's one issue. The only actually the, the CDC breaks out uh, uh, total deaths uh, so that you can kind of look at excess deaths by age range. The only age range in Tennessee where you've had excess deaths is the 25 to 34 category. And, and, and that's, that's a category where there has been one COVID death officially in that, in that, in Nashville. Okay. So you've got over a hundred uh, excess you know, year over year uh, overdose deaths in Nashville. And, you know, in the city's own report, it says, you know, more than half of these cases are in the 25 to 44 age range. I mean, just connect the dots, you know, it's, it's very clear that, you know, we've done damage just in that area. And that's not accounting for, uh, you know, other aspects of, you know, uh, you know, things that are going to go on for a long time. You know, uh, cancer screenings and cardiovascular deaths and and things that are, you know, things that are just, you know, just completely being avoided or ignored by this this, you know, blinders on narrow focus on the virus. And, you know, yeah, we should make sure that the virus isn't, you know, impacting people that are, uh, you know, at high risk. So, uh, you know, people who have, uh, 
you know, underlying conditions that are severe and people who are over 70, those people have, you know, vastly lower life expectancies to begin with than the people that we're impacting every day at, at these younger age ranges that have just a lot more life ahead of them. I mean, it's, it's really, really sad. It's truly astounding. We we basically swapped out something that that for the most part wasn't much of an epidemic in 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 a large swath of the country, and we created a man made plague that is much worse. I mean, that is an astounding figure. You're saying that the only excess deaths you could see in Tennessee, clearly just by doing the math and process of elimination at the age level were from the lockdown deaths, very much drug deaths, but maybe suicides, some other things as well. I've seen a lot about suicides, in, particularly in, in, in some Tennessee counties. But I want to end with your bread and butter, and th- those are life expectancy tables. I, I did an article recently on, um, you know, one of our friends, Jennifer Cabrera, talked about one day's batch of reporting from Florida where the median age of death was, uh, COVID deaths reported was 93 and w- what I said to myself was looking at that, we always knew there was a bit of inflation in the COVID deaths, the way we're counting it so liberally. But the more I think about it, it's got to be even more than I thought. Because like, if you could put this in perspective for us from what you deal with in your profession, if you have a 93-year-old, so that means at least for a male, you every single 93-year-old has a 22% chance of not living out that year. They just that's just how it is from anything. It and therefore a number of them are going to die any given six month period. And if you take a pool of let's say 10,000 of them, <clears throat> well, at any given time, because this virus is very prolific, we all agreed to that. It's kind of spreads like the cold now you're going to have a certain number of them that are going to test positive for it. Now, of course, it is potentially more dangerous. We all agree at that age level, but it's not a 100% kill rate, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, told me that when he was, uh, they were checking out uh, nursing homes, even there, they often found 70% of cases were asymptomatic. But you're tagged with a COVID death if you die subsequent to a positive COVID test which we now know picks up traces of pathogens, you know, that really are not, you know, infectable, they're not transmissible, they're not a problem. So are we capturing a lot of what some might say the angel of death and his natural kind of function? Yeah, I mean, you know, so, so you know, again, there, there, we haven't seen excess death in, in Tennessee, even in these age ranges that COVID is impacting, you know, 75 to 84 and, and 85 plus, uh, you know, that was despite, you know, a surge in uh, recorded cases, a surge in recorded hospitalizations and and the, the peak uh, of the uh, epidemic curve in deaths uh, here in about late July, and, and that's true in Davidson County, and that's true in, in surrounding counties as well, that timing. Um, you know, so that's long enough that you should be able to see it in the CDC's data. There's a little bit of a time lag there with what the CDC reports, but uh, you know, yeah, the, we're, we're talking about there. There was a there was a, a day uh, recently, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, in, in Davidson County, where the the county reported one death. Uh, of a 104-year-old woman with underlying health conditions. Now, I I don't know what the underlying health conditions were, but I can tell you that that a 104-year-old female has a life expectancy to begin with of about 12 months without underlying health conditions. So, you know, these are the types of things that when you when you look at, you know, why is there no excess deaths, even though we've recorded 252, you know, COVID deaths in Davidson County? I mean, you, you really need to think about you know, what, what were the life expectancies of the people that, that died? And, and there are, you know, there are excess deaths in New York and there are excess deaths, you know, in other places in the country that were more heavily impacted. But, you know, our response here in Tennessee has been, especially in Nashville, has been the same or even harsher than some of those places like Arizona and Florida. And it's just not proportional to the, the, the size of the threat. Meanwhile, we're, you know, we're causing enumerate damage to, you know, well, some of it, you know, we can quantify, but, but some of it is going to last for quite a long time to people that were never really at any risk of this virus other than, you know, capturing it and transmit, transmitting it, uh, you know, as they would with, with any 
uh, you know, widespread uh, coronavirus or flu or, or what have you. Because that was my theory from day one, that when we say this is dangerous to seniors, even then it wasn't all seniors. That for the most part, there, there are exceptions, and, and definitely throughout the country it has cut lives short. But generally speaking, it's not the 73-year-old that was bound to live another 15 years that died from it. That Because because you would see that, right? I mean, it, it, it's the ones that more or less, that was the end of the rope. Sometimes it wasn't COVID at all. It was a complete BS uh, designation of a COVID death. Sometimes it's kind of like maybe it did, but they were on their way out, and the virus has a way of vetting that out. Um, it was Neil Ferguson himself who said that two-thirds of the expected deaths would be people who would die within the year. Um, so again, it's not all seniors. If someone is healthy and you, know, you never know, but if you have 15 years left to you, for the most part, it's not those people that are dying from it. It's the ones that are pretty much at the end of their line. And some people are unfortunately at the end of their line earlier than others, even in their 60s. That does happen. Um, where could we're about out of time here? Where could people find your work and, and your group's work and your information? Yeah, so so we're Nashville for Rational COVID Policy. Uh, you can find us at smartnashville.org, uh, on Twitter, uh, at the Smart Nashville, and then I'm at Malkusm, M-A-L-K-U-S-M. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're continuing to focus on the, uh, you know, transparency and then accountability of the data and then the proportionality of our response. So, you know, we're going to continue to fight that fight and hopefully we can get more results like we did this week. Folks, if you have one, at least one of these groups in at least every red state, we would really change things. We got to do this. Um, this is a true and tried model that seems to be working politically uh, to, to start a very serious data-driven website with a group of people. Each person, like like Matt said, has their own skill set. One maybe is more political, has ties to um, some elected officials. Someone is media savvy. Another person is good in research or data. This is what we need to do state by state, city by city. We need to take back our liberty and and just understand the rationality of this that in many areas, we're actually killing more people from the response than the virus itself. And it's certainly evident in Tennessee. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back to keep us updated on this. And we are just about out of time. Till next week, God bless you all. And thank you for listening. <laughs>